0: welcome back to the Silver Screen and Roll Podcast Network. This is I Love Basketball, and I'm your host, Sabrina Merchant. The Lakers just lost a pretty disappointing game, 116-107, to the Washington Wizards. Despite the fact that Anthony Davis had called it a must-win game, it did not end that way for the Lakers. There is a very worthwhile discussion to be had about how the Lakers looked when Anthony Davis played power forward today versus how they looked when AD was at center as well as a conversation about how 80s recovery is going as a whole. But we're going to leave that until tomorrow for the Can You Ticket It Guys. For today, I had the good fortune of being joined by Ben Gulliver of the Washington Post, who has just written a book called Bubble Ball, which chronicles the 2020 NBA bubble that happened to end quite nicely for the Los Angeles Lakers. Ben shares some of his best stories from the bubble, including a lot of goodies about LeBron James and the Lakers, and it's a really great palate cleanser after a game like today. Reminder of how good the Lakers were in the not so distant past. You're gonna love it. Make sure you're subscribed to the Silver Screen and Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you want to listen to your shows. And here is that conversation with Ben. Today we are joined by the Washington Post's Ben Goliver. Ben, what's up?
1: Not too much, Sabrina. Thanks for having me on. I know we're gonna chat about um, Bubble Ball, the book that I wrote about the NBA's bubble last summer. I don't want to spoil the ending, but the Lakers won they won the title. I was there. LeBron sprayed all of us reporters with champagne because he had nobody else to celebrate with. And, uh, and I think your listeners are probably going to find that there's some details in the book, maybe that they didn't hear other places, or uh, it'll be a fun way to relive that title push.
0: All right. So we, we buried the lead here, right? <laughs> ben is on because he wrote a book called bubble ball, which happens to chronicle the season from inside the bubble, right? The postseason that took place in Disney world last year. Uh, I wanted to ask you just first of all, you were obviously covering the bubble for the Washington Post. There was plenty of places for you to put out all of the stories that you were, you know, consuming in real time. Why did you also want to write a book?
1: Well, I've always wanted to write a book, but I never had the topic. And so I was like a guy walking around, just you know, twiddling his thumb, saying, "One of these days, the topic is going to fall into my lap." And sure enough, it did. Um, I think you know, I really enjoyed the feedback that I got on some of the first person essays I wrote from the bubble for the Washington Post. I think that people just sort of enjoyed this weird science fiction adventure of, hey, this random basketball dork that's sent to Disney World to watch all these Hall of Famers compete for a title. But meanwhile, he's got to wear you know, proximity alarms and go under COVID testing and you know walk circles around this campus where there's nobody else. And they just kind of were struck by the weirdness. And there was a lot of rubberneckers, too. I mean, I talk about that in the book the number of interviews that people asked to do when I first got there. And essentially the questions just boiled down to like, Hey, do you feel like you're going to die? I mean, that was kind of what people were asking, you know, and a little bit of a morbid curiosity angle to it. And so for me, I think I'm kind of a quirky person in general. And so it felt like a good match for the experience, but also, you know, I wanted to write this book because 2020 is going to go down as one of the most important years in NBA history. When you add up the China and Hong Kong controversy, Kobe Bryant's tragic death, David Stern's death, uh, the shutdown with the pandemic, and then bringing everything back with the bubble. Uh, to me, it's in the financial implications there, not to mention the social justice protests, uh, you know, during a presidential election year where, you know, a lot of players were actively involved there, add all of that up. And it felt like, look, somebody needs to document this for history. And uh, I felt like, well, look, I'm, I'm having a good time down here. I'm getting good feedback on some of the stuff I'm writing. So this could be a project that's worth uh, pursuing. And no, luckily enough, it came together pretty quickly once I was down there, and I could kind of look at it off in the distance. You know, once I left the bubble, I didn't really start writing the book until after I had left. And uh, you know, from that standpoint, I, I got to relive the entire experience over again while writing.
0: Yeah, I think the minute I knew that you were onto something was when you posted that video of you in quarantine in your hotel room, hitting your step count, just walking eight yeah. steps back and forth in the room over and over again, and. Still hit what, like a fifteen K step count during the day, and I was like, "Yeah,
1: yeah, There's, no, there's some persistence here. <laughs> unfortunately, I think that video has become synonymous with me of just like I'm the crazy person who got stuck in quarantine, like you know, um, you know, locked into this hotel room for a week and just had nowhere to go. I felt a little bit like you know a, a hamster in a wheel during a science experiment in high school or something like that. I was waiting for them to bring me the cheese to reward me when I hit my step count on my Apple Watch, but look, it was a really challenging experience. You know, I, when I was there, I gained weight, you know, I didn't sleep very well. The stress level was way up. I totally felt the isolation stuff that people were describing. And we heard from a number of players from LeBron to Paul George, Danny Green, express those kinds of sentiments. And I didn't even have to play. I was just there writing, you know, and and they had to deal with a lot more stress and, uh, you know, commentary on social media about their performance and everything else. And so, I really wanted this book to capture the challenges of the experience too, because I think it's a credit to the players that they went down there in the first place, they stuck with it, they saw the whole thing through, and they were able to get a champion crown. To me, that was really important. There's been a champion every single year in the NBA going on 74 years now, and having a blank spot in that record book would have been really tough to swallow, and you know, I'm so glad they were able to find a way to kind of uh, avoid that. And uh, they did it through persistence, and I think that was a, a main goal for for this book was, you know, kind of try to capture the level of personal commitment that was involved from these players. LeBron showing up hours before every game to go through his routine. LeBron sitting on the sideline going through meditation exercises to get himself balanced before games. Um, you know, the extended post game commentaries that they would uh, unleash, whether. You know, they're talking gun control or Jacob Blake or uh, Breonna Taylor or President Trump, Republican National Convention. I mean, these players were weighing in on all sorts of different things while also playing a really high stakes, high pressure postseason. And uh, I wanted to make sure that there was someone kind of documenting that for history.
0: And one of the things I really liked about the book, you know, as a Laker fan, is that obviously it ends nicely. You know, it's exactly the ending you were hoping for when you started the book. but even if you're only following just one team, like it gives a nice picture of everything else that's going on in the bubble. But then if you are a Laker fan, which I assume the majority of people who listen to this podcast are, then you get all the extra little details about what sort of set the Lakers apart in the bubble versus the other teams. And you see sort of like the cracks that appeared in all of the other rosters that just didn't happen with the Lakers. And that's an an interesting comparison to this season because I know you talked a lot about availability with LeBron James and how like he thinks it's really important that he's never missed a playoff game for his teams and you know knock on wood that's not going to happen this year but there is like an element of uncertainty that has been introduced with this Lakers team that really wasn't present with the one in the bubble at all Um, so why don't we start with that actually the Lakers uh, comparing what we saw in the bubble last year to what they are this year he talked a lot about their chemistry there's some really great anecdotes about what the Lakers did while they were on the bench um, just in the bubble altogether. I'm not going to spoil them. People who want to read the book, they're really funny, but um, have you gotten a good sense of what, you know, the Lakers have on that front this year relative to what they had in the bubble?
1: Well, it's a lot harder for us to determine this year because of just the eye access and the proximity is different. You know, in the bubble, we were close enough to be able to hear the bench to hear the trash talk on the court. And you're mentioning some of the cracks that showed for other teams. You know, for Portland, they were just exhausted coming into that first round series. The Lakers were able to you know, take control pretty early. I know they dropped game one, but, um, you know, they were just feeling very, very confident like they could do anything they wanted against Portland. And ultimately, when the shutdown happened, it just gave the Lakers even more time to kind of rest up, pull themselves together. And they just completely, you know, ran away with that series afterwards. I'll never forget that second round series because Houston's going through all this drama with Daniel House getting kicked out of the bubble and having a visitor in his hotel room. And, you know, the Rockets came out and were kind of desperate and flailing and, you know, Harden's uh, focus level was up and down. It just wasn't quite where it needed to be. And, you know, I just remember Robert Covington kind of complaining to the officials about the physical treatment, how the Lakers were playing physically. And LeBron basically just telling him to shut up and like quit whining. And, you know, just play basketball. He's like, all you ever do is hold me and just kind of like putting him, smacking him back in his place a little bit. And I was like, okay, you know, LeBron's here to play. And I also remember game four of that series, you know, LeBron came out and put on this crazy pregame dunk contest where he's like doing like jackhammer dunks, self alley-oops. I mean, the ball boys are like scurrying out of his way. They don't want to get run over by LeBron. And it was at that moment, I, I think he sensed this title was going to be his, right? Like the path was wide open. The Clippers were sort of struggling at that point. Houston was falling apart. The Bucs were up a creek. I think that he felt like he had a big experience advantage over everybody else in the Eastern Conference. And so it was like the the waters were parting for him. And I'll never forget that pre-game thug contest because he just went out there with like three times more energy than he would normally have. Now for this season, you know, recapturing that chemistry stuff is difficult. And I think that's why you saw some of the roster changes that you saw during the offseason. Um, you don't want to just run it back with everybody and assume that the same formula is going to work. They tried to get younger. They tried to get more athletic. I think they even tried to get deeper with their rotations as well. And they've been uh, tinkering here during the season, uh, making a big move like adding Andre Drummond as well. I think that they were trying to build on what they did last year but not replicate it. And I think that's really important because, you know, the cliche goes like it's, uh, it's easier to get to the top than it is to stay there. And I think that was their entire guiding mentality here Um, over the last 12 months I'm impressed with this Lakers roster on paper I think Andre Drummond's been better than I thought he would be Um, Anthony Davis it looks to me like they took his recovery very slowly which is good and I imagine they're doing the same thing with LeBron so if there's one lesson for them I think it's if you can get LeBron back on the court with like eight games to play this regular season that's pretty similar to last year's bubble right where they had eight warm-up games and they, they go to the playoffs so that could be one comparison point or a target, right? It's like, if you can get LeBron back with you know eight games to play, get him feeling his groove, get him back comfortable with AD, you can go into a first-round playoff series with some momentum. And I think that's probably going to be their goal.
0: What's funny about those eight seeding games is LeBron probably took three of them seriously, and then they just shut down for the last five once the seeding was already in place, um, which created a lot of uh, unnecessary consternation now that I think back on it. <laughs> Those games know, against panicked, the Thunder and the Rockets were like, oh, what are the Lakers going
1: to look like in the second round? You know, we all panicked because Rondo had the thumb, right? And mm-hmm. everyone's like, oh, the Lakers—you know, their offense struggled so badly in those games. And then the same thing was happening for the Clippers and the Bucks. So the question was like, are all the favorites going to be doomed now that the season is completely changed and we're down here in Disney World? And I give the Lakers a lot of credit for putting it back together. They tried to be very vocal and together. You know, AD and LeBron behind the scenes were, like, inseparable. I mean, just always going everywhere together. And then during the games, you just heard from the bench, like, everybody's screaming. Like, the Lakers bench loved to scream out the names of different foods, right? Like, if AD is, like, eating somebody up on the block, like, in their terminology, they're shouting out, like, fried chicken, steak and eggs, and, like, all this stuff just to mess with the opponents. So they tried to find little ways to intimidate the other teams there because I think that they did feel – throughout that that experience, it was their title to lose. They felt like they should be the favorites. They felt like they had the best players there. And ultimately they went 16 and five through the playoffs and proved it. So um, they were right. And I think, you know, probably some of those tactics worked along the way too.
0: You uh, had a little bit of a discussion about, you know, whether the winner of the 2020 title deserved an asterisk or like, whether there was a a badge of honor associated with it. Uh, To me, it seems like the Lakers approached their offseason with the mindset, like we can't count on bubble like being a representative indication of all of the other teams, right? Like even though we won the title, deserve a title, you know, Astros Banner, whatever you want to associate with it. The the way they acted to me didn't suggest that they were comfortably ahead of everybody else in the NBA. It's it seemed that they knew that this was an unreplicatable circumstance, right? And that they would have to significantly change things. And I'm curious, like, did you ever get that feeling that even though title was definitely like deserved obviously like they they went through the same rigor as everybody else that they treated it a little bit differently than they might have had it happened like in Staples Center in a normal type of season
1: well I think they wish they had the celebration for sure I wish they, I think they wish AD hit his shot in Staples Center so that he could get the crowd cheering I think they wish they had the championship parade I don't think that they necessarily viewed it differently but I do think that you know if you're just looking at this from like uh you know, a state of play perspective, if you can win a title without having to play Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, Giannis, Jason Tatum, Kawhi Leonard, and Paul George in the playoffs, good luck trying to replicate that, right? Like really good luck with that path. And so, you know, ultimately they were rewarded for having that top seed. They had a really clean path to the title. It broke absolutely perfectly for them. And they, you know, made their own luck in those series for sure. But they got some fortunate matchups teams that they, um, you know, like Denver is a really, really good team. They just match up better with Denver than vice versa. They did last year as well. So um, I think that's why their mentality was don't rest on the laurels during the off season, right? Prepare yourself to be able to to handle even tougher uh, matchups, whoever it might be, whether that's the Clippers, or whether that's the Brooklyn Nets in the finals, or, you know, whether you have to get, Steph Curry and the Warriors somehow like in the first round if they were coming into the season thinking that right so um I think that was you know their approach more than anything I want to kill the asterisk talk here's how we know it wasn't an asterisk look at the major moves other teams made in response to what happened in the bubble Pelicans fire their coach Sixers fire their coach Rockets part ways with their coach uh Bucks trade Eric Bledsoe as fast as humanly possible. Got him on the very first bus to New Orleans, right? Um, we saw major reactions to the type of play we saw in the bubble. So if this was an asterisk and everybody just said, oh, this was a normal playoffs and or uh, this was an abnormal playoffs, we shouldn't take it seriously. You would not have seen the types of overhauls we saw from a lot of key teams, including the Lakers, like you described. So this was not a write-off by any stretch. It was really challenging. The Lakers were clear champions. They deserve uh, the credit for that. And the asterisk talk bugs me because it was tough. And the players were not laying that on thick. I mean, it was a real challenging experience from a personal standpoint. And uh, look, it was hard for me. And I live in a one-bedroom apartment and drive a Ford. You know, imagine if I had a mansion with my personal gym, a chef, you know, 10 other people taking care of me. And I'm my choice between like a Maserati and, you know, my limo, my Range Rover, like some of these players have, like it's a much bigger adjustment for them. From a lifestyle standpoint than it is for me and it was tough for me so i, I think that kind of helps provide some context uh, you know when we're trying to say should this ring matter it should absolutely matter
0: yeah i mean you didn't even mention the clippers firing their head coach and the sun's like Great point yeah. taking their eight no run as a sign that they were ready for the next step and trading for chris ball so yeah that's that's a really good point a lot of a lot of meaningful changes happened after the bubble that suggested that it was actually a real playoff experience but I wanted to talk more about the bubble itself because you are one of what, like one of the only people that was not under the Lakers or Miami heat payroll to be there the entire time. Right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There wasn't many people down there who stayed the entire time. I mean, there was about 10 independent writers total and they, some people would kind of rotate in and out. So I was there for 93 days, 92 nights. And trust me, I know that number by heart because uh, there was, there was some countdowns going on at various points, I think.
0: All right. So one thing I think a lot of Laker fans had questions about was every team had their own floor right within the hotels where they can have all their rooms how did they pick who got which rooms do you know
1: great question um so the the actual team hotels were one of the areas that were totally off limits to media so in my mind i would let my mind kind of roam and just imagine like the absolute coolest hotels ever but i think in reality you know it was a stand it was whatever they had to work with right I know that the, there were some suite rooms, like bigger rooms that they tended to give to superstar level players. I think Damian Lillard and LeBron kind of showed off their rooms. I don't know if they were palatial. Like, I'm not sure we would call this, you know, Ritz Carlton four seasons type, but they looked much nicer than my little courtyard by Marriott type setup that I had uh, in, the, in the media dorms. So um, I think that, you know, essentially there was a star treatment involved for the individual players in terms of the floors, I don't know if there was, um, you know, any sort of preference if somebody wanted a higher floor or not. But I do know they strictly limited access between the floors. In other words, they didn't want cross-contamination from a health standpoint between, like, the Raptors and the Lakers or the Clippers and the Lakers. But, you know, you would still – the players would run into each other on campus. You know, that famous video of Jamal Murray saying, you know, Donovan Mitchell just scored 50 on us, and here he is sitting in the courtyard. I've got to look at him and just being all annoyed about it that kind of stuff happened all the time. I mean, I saw the Lakers fishing from the docks that, you know, were right in front of their hotel, which is also right in front of mine constantly. And, you know, it takes a big fishing pole for a, a guy like JaVale McGee. I'll say that. I mean, it's, it's a different, you know, it's kind of like golf clubs. It's a different length involved when, uh, when you're seven footer, but um, you know, those, those areas were completely off limits to basically everyone besides team personnel, because they were concerned that that was going to be a high a possibility area for contamination, right? Like if one person got sick, it would be very easy for a lot of people to spread. And so those strict rules wound up working because they kept everybody safe.
0: Yeah, one of the things I liked about your, you know, narration of what was going on was how much you talked about the actual protocols. Like we were all very much during the height of a pandemic at that time, right? And it's kind of easy to forget because of how much time has passed since then, like all of the protocols we were under, even at home, right? As opposed to you in the bubble. So I really appreciated that part of the narrative that was thrown in because, yeah, it's a a real part of what was happening during that summer. It's a real part of what everyone around the world was going through. And just because they were in the bubble, it doesn't mean that there wasn't still attention paid to all of these things, even more so, I think, like all of the
1: procedures that you described, it
0: it sounded almost exhausting, just everything that you had to go through on a daily
1: basis. No, and that was part of the reason why I described it, because it was a huge part of my life. You know, the first thing I would do every single morning uh, would be to go get my test. And, you know, even before I could get the test, I'd have to fill out paperwork. Do I feel any symptoms? What's my uh, blood oxygen level? I'd have to put on these different devices that track me. So they knew where I was going on campus. Um, It was a very rigorous, restrictive experience, unlike anything that I had, you know, ever gone through before. And that was where I kind of started to think about like future readers when I was writing this book, because I don't know if you read any of the newspaper accounts from like the Spanish flu, you know, and it's like, there was a mask debate, you know, a hundred years ago, like, should we wear masks or not? And they're like bringing back all these newspaper articles about that. So I kind of thought, you know, in 20 years, maybe people who haven't been through a pandemic would want to read about like the crazy levels that we had to go to to stay safe. And the crazy levels that we went to to watch a sport, right? I mean, this is just basketball, right? This is not like brain surgery. We're not really, you know, it's, it's, it's an, a game ultimately and a game that matters a lot to me and is very important. And it was certainly worth all the sacrifices that everyone had to make in in my opinion, but it is pretty astonishing. The level that they went to, I think it, by the way, that's part of the reasons why they didn't go back to the bubble. I, you know, probably scared some people off a little bit. It was pretty intense and you could handle it for three months it kind of felt like a study abroad semester, but you're getting this idea of doing all that for seven or eight, nine months for a season, way too much. And I think you you heard that from the players. And of course the owners wanted to get back to normal as well, get people back in their buildings. So um, I felt like that was a crucial aspect to the story. One final point on that though, you know, there was a lot of jokes when we first got there kind of comparing it to like, oh, it's like a white collar prison. It's like jail, it's confinement. And for me, um, I didn't even like those references at the time and looking back on it, I really think that they're inappropriate. We knew when we were getting out, we had the ability to walk around. We also had the ability to leave at any time. In other words, if we just didn't feel comfortable, if it was too hard, you could go home. That's not jail. That's, that's not uh, prison in any stretch. And so I think, you know, that experience gave me a different level of perspective on those who actually are in an incarcerated lifestyle. And it made me very, grateful and thankful for the levels of freedom that I did have, even if some of those freedoms were compromised during that experience or here over the last year, because it's just not comparable, right? I mean, three months in in Disney world is not 15 years to life. It's just, it shouldn't have been framed that way by anybody really.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree on that part. Um, You're mentioning all the protocols and I think, you know, the one incident that obviously the Laker fans associate with protocols most is when Daniel house was, knocked out of the second round of the playoffs from game three onwards. And you talked a little bit about how Houston felt like they weren't in the loop about what was going on with his situation. Um, That's the kind of thing that I think could happen again in this year's playoffs, right? Because we're still in a situation where players are getting tested every day. There's all of these health and safety procedures that they have to go through to play in their games, even if they're not in the bubble. Uh, Do you get the sense that there's more clarity from the NBA's part on how they're, Dealing with these things now? Like, uh, is there, do, could you foresee there potentially being an issue with health and safety again? Where not necessarily a high profile player, but like Daniel Haas was like sixth or seventh guy in that rotation. Like, he was an important guy for the Rockets. Um, could you see that potentially affecting this year's postseason?
1: So, you know, him leaving, it didn't make the Lakers win, but it sure made them win faster. You know, it, it sure took the excitement out of that series. And, you know, my point on on the impact there was just like this was kind of the NBA's worst nightmare because they're always being accused of being kind of like, you know, Lakers lovers, you know, that famous David Stern quote, who's your dream finals? Well, I want to see Lakers versus Lakers. and It's like, well, if that's the league office's statement here and this is like kind of the feeling that people have and all of a sudden, you know, the Lakers are catching this huge break because of a, a player being held out during an investigation where nobody knows if he actually did anything wrong that looks pretty suspicious and it goes to the integrity of the game. Right. I mean, ultimately they were able to to solve it fairly quickly. And I think that they handled it in a pretty discreet manner as well. I mean, given the sensitivity of his actions, right. Like his family's involved there, his teammates are involved. It's, you know, you don't really want him to like get up on the stand and testify. And clearly it was no surprise that he didn't want to like get this out of the story publicly. Right. So, That was a sticky situation. Are we going to see something like that again this year? I'm not sure. The the one thing that I'm happy about is that players are getting vaccinated because that reduces the possibility of like contact tracing absences or other things that are kind of in gray areas that's going to frustrate people. I mean, obviously, Kevin Durant was super frustrated earlier this year when he got held out twice. Um, And I also think that uh, we're not going to have access probably as media members to understanding the exact nature of violations as they come out right because you know guys can be held out for contact tracing for all sorts of different reasons it doesn't just have to be because they were exposed it could be that they violated some league rule about where you can and can't go on road trips and just because of the reporting aspects this year I think that you know some of that stuff is probably harder to to come to the surface Um, there's definitely a potential for players to miss time during the playoffs But because of the vaccination, just because of the overall trends in the virus itself, um, and because of the familiarity with the health protocol programs at this point, I'm actually pretty hopeful that we're going to get a limited number of situations like that, especially compared to January, where games were getting postponed left and right and huge uh, portions of rosters were being held out. Um, I'm pretty optimistic. You look at the number of positive tests recently, it's been very low for about a month and a half now. And the vaccinations thing is a game changer for everybody, not just NBA players, but for everybody.
0: Yeah. I just hope that with the vaccinations that there's a, a lightning, you know, to all of the rules that they have to follow, because it does feel like the players are exhausted right now. And I don't know if that compares to how they were feeling in the bubble, because obviously level of access is different all around, but, you know, like you said, the, the Blazers were just beat when they got to the playoffs. And a lot of that was because they had to expend all of their energy in those nine games Seating game plus the playing game heading into when they played the Lakers. But I do think there was a general sense of fatigue around some of the teams because of the bubble. And I wonder if that still exists because of the environment that they've had to live in during the season, even if it's not restricted like it was a year ago.
1: You you can make an argument. This season has been tougher on the players because they've had to travel. You know, that was the best part about the bubble was no travel. It's all single site. You see a high quality level of play, good energy level from everybody because, um, at least they don't have to hop on planes and go back and forth three or four times within a series. Or if you have a short turnaround between series, now you're like scrambling to prepare for your next opponent, you know, and, and it was really, wasn't that case there in the bubble. I also think that, you know, going to cities and just knowing that you have friends in those cities, but you can't see them for the first couple of months of the year, that just makes it even worse. Cause it's like, you're a kid in a candy shop locked out. You know what I mean? And so you can kind of stare at all your friends and, and, you know, acquaintances and it's just like, no, sorry, you just have to be in your hotel room by yourself. So um I do think that they're planning to loosen the protocols for teams if you reach a certain number of players vaccinated. And so, you know, we, we may find out case by case when teams hit those thresholds. But I think that, you know, most players have probably gotten into their head by this point that this season's going to be weird through the end of the playoffs, kind of no matter what. One way or another, it's not going to be the same. And I think everybody's hoping that next year looks better and is uh, you know, a little bit more reflective of uh, their typical lifestyle.
0: Yeah. I imagine when I, you headed down to the bubble that the expectation was that the next season was going to look a lot more like a normal NBA season and it would be much more of an outlier. And it turns out, I mean, it's definitely an outlier being in that single set environment definitely changes things, but uh, were there any stories that you had from the bubble that you didn't include in the book that just didn't fit for whatever reason?
1: I squeezed just about everything I wanted to um, from the bubble experience into the bubble. I think some of the toughest cut uh, material was actually Kobe related because, as you know, I moved down here in 2015, so I was here for his final season. And I really came to appreciate the fondness the fan base here had for Kobe. Um, You know, in Portland, the closest that we ever had to that was like Brandon Roy. um, And his career was so short and it was kind of like almost over before you knew it that it really left kind of an empty hole for a lot of fans and, and they were trying to, they, ultimately they fell back in love with Damian Lillard for sure. But to see the level of devotion from the size and scope of the uh, Lakers fan base towards Kobe, I felt like I wanted to get as much of that in as possible. And ultimately like the Kobe story and the Lakers story from last year are inseparable, but I didn't want the Kobe story from like the previous five years to kind of overshadow, um, the Lakers title push because ultimately that's sort of what the book was about was was the bubble. So trying to strike the right balance for how much to include about Kobe, Anthony Davis yelling his name, Frank Mamba talking about the Ma- or, Sorry, Frank Vogel talking about the Mamba. Mamba is shot. a good nickname. <laughs> yeah, Frank Mama is what his family and friends call. I'm sorry, you know, I should be saying that on the podcast publicly. Um, and then also just describing going to the crash site, you know, after his death, which I did and reported on from there. You know, all of that was part of my story from last, uh, you know, last season. And so I wanted to include that. But, you know, I could have written a lot more about Kobe because he's such a, you know, such a fascinating figure, so important to so many people. And, you know, ultimately just a legend that kind of looms over the city to this day. Um, So that was, you know, those are the toughest cuts because I probably had an extra 15 or 20 pages about Kobe that ultimately we had to say, all right, like, let's got to pick and choose here. And that was hard.
0: I will say, if you ever want to like write, you know, a Kindle single or something, I'm sure there's a big market for all of that Kobe content at some point in the future. Uh, Interesting
1: idea. Well, that's why you're my agent, Sabrina. Congratulations, (laughs) you've been hired.
0: (laughs) All right. So the book has some really cool bookmarks, right? We've got the iconic Anthony Davis photo of him looking in on LeBron James' press conference and then LeBron celebrating with a cigar at the end. In a hypothetical universe where the Lakers do not win the title, what do you think your bookmarks would have been?
1: it's a great question i've had some requests for mikey the egret who is like this bird that i would follow around the. (laughs) he gets mentioned a lot in the book (laughs) yeah he does kind of doesn't he uh well look he was like my best buddy and i really felt like a real kinship with him because uh you know i would walk out there every single afternoon and like you're going by the exact same ponds every single day you know there's not a lot of uh, change so i had some requests for a mikey the egret um bookmark he's almost become like a minor celebrity which is kind of weird you know um but I think, uh, you know, I was I had a picture of the Bam Adebayo block on Jason Tatum. That would have been a real top contender. Uh, you know, maybe some Jamal Murray, like, splashing Michael Malone, you know, joy moments after that first-round playoff series. Um, but I'll be honest. I went down there expecting the Lakers to make a deep postseason run, and I'm not a fool. So I followed the Lakers around a lot. And I'll tell you, like, a lot of my best photos were of LeBron. And I, if you go to my Instagram account, shameless plug, uh, you'll be able to see a lot of pictures of, of LeBron getting ready before games, um, you know, interacting with Anthony Davis, like, off the court in the hallways. There's a video of him coming through and saying, job not done after the Western Conference Finals, you know, kind of another homage to Kobe. And so, you know, I'm going to associate that experience in, in all aspects, whether it's visual, video, all of it. Um, with the Lakers and LeBron. And by the way, I should point out the last dance camera crew who did the Michael Jordan documentary were down there in the bubble following the Lakers around as well. So at some point you're going to get probably an awesome Lakers documentary with me looking like very dorky, taking pictures of these guys in the background and getting absolutely doused in champagne uh, during their celebration. So you can look forward to that. I don't know when they're going to do it, but I can't wait to see it because I'm sure it's going to be awesome because For a video camera crew, the access was phenomenal. They could just follow these guys around in the tunnels after games, you know, listen to their conversations, and everybody was pretty relaxed down there because, you know, nobody's wearing suits, you know, everybody's in sweats, and so you kind of get a sense of LeBron and AD's, like, true personalities in those moments.
0: Do you have video of LeBron, you know, in that impromptu dunk contest before Game 4 of the Houston series? Because I will say my one regret about the LeBron James experience is that he never entered a dunk contest.
1: Well, yeah, look, I've been trying to guilt trip LeBron in the dunk contest for about nine years. So I'm right there with you. I mean, I'm about to do one of those petitions. You know, it's like, let's raise money (laughs) to convince LeBron. Um, I do have when he
0: said that, you know, he was preliminary putting in his name, you know, for the Dallas dunk contest back in 2010. And then (sighs) such a downer, downer
1: promises made promises kept LeBron. Actually, that was a promise that you broke. Uh, We don't forget. Um, it would be incredible if you ever did it, but I've actually shifted my focus. I want Zion in now. And I know you're at the Duke allegiances. So you're probably right there with me. If we could just get a Zion dunk contest, we can call it even with LeBron. Maybe if Zion does it, LeBron will get jealous and he'll want to do it. You know, there's some other ways that it could happen. Maybe Bronny comes in and does one in LeBron's throne of Eli you know, or, they're doing headers like Steve Nash did to Amari Stoudemire all those years ago. Let's oh, not never that
0: replicate much. the Steve Nash, you know, <laughs> the little kick that he tried to do before they turned it into a header is just, we don't need to talk about that anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, good point. Uh, fair enough. We could draw the line at Zion versus LeBron. I think everybody would be happy there, but I will send you videos of that. I mean, it was, it was pretty fun. And Again, it was, it was the routines the Lakers got in to keep themselves sane. I mean, you remember the, uh, the football passes before the games, right? Mm-hmm. LeBron would, like, throw one deep to AD. AD would, like, throw one deep to LeBron. They're trying to get their feet tapped down, and they're yelling out different football players' names. I mean, whatever they could do to keep themselves loose, they did. And um, I appreciated it because the Lakers last year were showmen. They understood there's no crowd in the audience, but that people were watching from home. And so they always made sure to put on a show, whether it was trash talk, talking on defense, their style of play, their effort level, um, even some of their celebrations. Remember when AD hit that deep three and LeBron comes over and almost knocks his hand off with the high five uh, (laughs) center court. I mean, all those things, again, it feels weird when you're watching them in an empty jig. You're like, wow, these guys are like fired up. They need to dial it down a notch. But they understood completely the power of television. It it worked great on television. And I think ultimately it really kept their fan base engaged. And, um, you know, I'm sure your listeners probably feel that same way, too they're going to remember those AD shots, you know, and some of those LeBron turnarounds against Denver in game five, you know, they're going to remember those ones for a long time.
0: Yeah. I think one thing that LeBron has consistently mastered throughout his career is just a sense of the moment, like what each particular occasion requires of him. And, you know, you weren't sure if that was going to translate into a situation where he didn't have the fans or didn't have external motivation, but it's, it still happened, right? Like he still understood exactly what was needed of him, what was needed of the Lakers. And watching those games, you, you kind of forgot that there were no fans there because the Lakers didn't act like that on television. They performed exactly like they would have in a full building.
1: You're teeing me up, Sabrina, to, to say my favorite phrase, which is the greatest ability is availability. Availability is not the same thing as presence. Showing up is not availability, right? Availability is understanding what people need from you, what your role is, Um, what your leadership responsibilities are, making sure you're reliable, making sure you're there day-to-day setting a tone. And that's why when LeBron gave his speech after winning the the title about the importance of availability, how much it mattered to him that he could be out there on the court for every single game, I hope young players, young coaches, everybody was paying attention and listening to that because that's what it's all about. I mean, LeBron was available to the media on topics like Breonna Taylor, gun control, Donald Trump. He was available to his fellow players as they're planning, how do they want to coordinate their activism? He's available to the voting public, setting up, you know, more than a vote campaign that really spiked a lot of, um, you know, inner city turnout in various communities across the country. Um, you know, I voted at Staples Center. <laughs> Bingo. Yeah. yeah. And there was a lot of people who did, in whether it was Atlanta or Detroit or Philly or uh, Milwaukee, wherever else. And so, you know, to me, I came away from this process with an even deeper appreciation of LeBron than I'd ever had before. And I've seen him in a lot of scenarios, going all the way back to like the 2011 finals in high pressure moments. And I just felt like he kicked it up to a different level across the board in the bubble.
0: And what's cool is that the Lakers had a sense of what they needed to do throughout the entire season last year, right? The the bubble was obviously like a wonderful culmination, but it was just building on exactly what they had done throughout the regular season where they took every game seriously. They built themselves up toward that moment. And I mean, it's gotta be very satisfying that everything sort of worked out the way it should considering the devotion that they put into the process to get there. And that's, what's great for me, you know, reading the book is that that season was really special. You know, there are some championship seasons where like, I think about the last Lakers championship season in 2009, 10, or yeah, their playoff run was great, you know, and beating Boston in seven is great, but the regular season was kind of a slug, right? Like the Lakers really uh, turned it on and off that year, bailed out a lot by Kobe game winners. But this regular season, the the Laker team that won the title last year, they put their heart into every single game from game one. And I think you feel that watching them in the bubble, that it wasn't something that they just turned on for that occasion. It was the product of all of the work they'd put in to get to that point. And it's just wonderful to have that commemorated.
1: Well, I'm with you. They answered so many different questions and individual players answered different questions, right? Like AD, never been deeper than the second round of the playoffs. What's he going to look like? Oh, turns out he's not going to miss a jumper. He's just for like the three second three straight best straight player in the world. <laughs> right. Cantavious Caldwell Pope. It wasn't too long ago that dorks like me were calling him Cantavious can't play, right? And look at that. Cantavious could play. Cantavius got himself paid because he could play in some pretty important moments, right? Uh, Dwight Howard did not see that experience coming I mean talk about locking in from day one and really understanding your role Um, you go right down the list Rondo you know I was a skeptic on Rondo and, and even thought like you know this could have been a mistake for them what were they thinking could this you know backfire a little bit not at all in fact it went exactly kind of best case scenario for him too. you know. I just go right down the list. There's a lot of great individual stories. And and I think the bubble even changed like Kuzma. I feel like Kuzma came back as a better, different player this year, more focused player, more impactful player than he was earlier in his career too. So it was a real collection of a lot of stories. And I should have mentioned, by the way, Frank Vogel and uh, not Frank Mamba. Sorry uh, <laughs> from earlier, but that that was one thing I really wanted to hammer with this particular Lakers team was how fast the turnaround happened. Right. Because, it was only like 14 months before the bubble started, where Magic just walks off the job, doesn't even tell Jeannie. Luke Wallen's out of there under mysterious circumstances. There's a coaching search, which didn't really seem like it was going to go to Frank. And then all of a sudden, Frank winds up with it. They pull the big blockbuster with AD. They make a bunch of moves around the edges. And then all of a sudden, they just hit the ground running really early in the season, like you mentioned it was a remarkably fast turnaround. You hardly ever see that a team going from kind of disarray and dysfunction and questions, you know, LeBron's going on TV saying, you know, magic recruited me here. What happened? Why isn't he here anymore? Um, You know, people doubting could Rob Polinka lead the team, you know, this is his first time and all that. And to to see where they got just 12 or 13 months later is crazy, you know, and um, it, it really happened fast. I think the pandemic plays with our sense of time. It kind of warps things, you know, Everything feels like it's two days ago, but also five years ago. You know, just yeah. Kind of that Groundhog Day mentality. But for the Lakers, it happened so fast and so much happened during that time period. Obviously, the China controversy, Kobe's death and everything else.
0: Yeah. The, the way that the stars sort of aligned for them in that season just sets it into stark contrast with what has happened with the Lakers this year, where, yeah, they're the defending champions, but it doesn't really feel like there's that much special about this season other than that. And it's going to be really interesting to see what they look like in the postseason, you know, because they have some of that institutional continuity built over from last year's team, all of those wonderful characteristics that they had, you know, the, the growth that AD and Caruso and Kuzma and KCP and all those guys showed. But it's just an entirely different experience, right? Like the bubble was a unique setup, a one of a kind thing. And it'll be really interesting to see if the Lakers ever look like that version of themselves.
1: Totally fair question. I'm sensing some real doubt from you, Sabrina. I didn't know this. I didn't know this is where you were mentally. You're, you're kind of panicking right now, maybe.
0: You just brought up Rondo again, and I'm remembering that the Clippers brought in Rondo to save their season. <laughs> and all sorts of thoughts are running through my head at this point.
1: Well, you know, to kind of spin this forward, I look at the Lakers. I mean, it could have been a lot worse with no AD and no mm-hmm. LeBron. I mean, it could have been a lot worse. When you have the worst offense in the league without LeBron, and you're almost 500 okay that's pretty good right i mean you'll, you'll definitely take that i thought they were going to slide down to seven when i first saw lebron's injury just kind of penciling through the schedule it seems like they're going to avoid that you know potentially pretty comfortably and if they get denver you know in the first round with no murray and some other guys maybe banged up they match up better with denver than vice versa you know playoff Jokic's not going to go out quietly No, I love that guy. I love that guy. He's my MVP. He has been kind of since early days of this season, but the Lakers match up with him better than anybody else does in the Western Conference. Right. And so, um, you know, if that's what you're coming with as your first round matchup, after all the drama you've been through this year, I think that's a good start. And if it winds up being Utah in the second round, I think that they present, uh, present some real matchup problems for Utah too now you know, there's going to be some continuity advantages for some of these teams they play, no doubt, because they haven't had to deal with the same level of injuries as the Lakers. Um, But I do think, uh, you know, from a talent standpoint, LeBron kind of got me going back in the optimistic direction with that video of him jogging up and down the court. It's like, oh, yeah, here he comes. Storm brewing. you know, he's about ready to rock. And I would just kind of tell you, keep the faith. Stop panicking, Sabrina. It's going to be okay.
0: Yeah, I'm not so much panicking. It's just that as talented as this team is, And I do think that there is a distinct possibility that they go on a really epic playoff run and they still have potentially the two best players in the world. And they play like that during the playoffs. All of that is definitely on the table. I just think that it kind of reminds you of how special the 2019-20 Lakers were, the way that they were able to put it together almost immediately. And that postseason run, you know, 16-5 and where they kind of gave a game away against the Heat and probably could have been 16-4, and but like it was a really special dominant team. And it's not so much that I want to put down this year. I just think it's worthwhile to celebrate what that Laker group was. And that's why I had so much fun reading the book was because they're the stars of the show, right? The Lakers won the bubble and it's a great time reliving it.
1: Well, I love it because usually you hear people say, Oh, I'm not going to rank my children. Oh, I could never do that. And you're just out here saying this title was (laughs) great. I'm always going to remember it so much better than the other ones. And you're just kind of putting it up on a pedestal. I'm curious though, of all the Lakers titles, during your lifetime which one do you look at most fondly i mean
0: recency bias puts this one pretty high on my list really uh, really but, wow but i like that um 2009 i think is my favorite because that was when kobe got to win one on his own i was in china studying abroad at the time oh. and They freaking love Kobe over there. They love the (laughs) Lakers. And if you think celebrating in LA when the Lakers win a title is fun, celebrating in Beijing when the Lakers win a title is also a very good time.
1: Oh, my gosh. I would love to read a story about that. That sounds awesome. What a first world problem. Oh, here we are ranking our rings. Boy, what a tough life for Lakers fans. Jeez Louise. Hey, you brought up the question. (laughs) I did. I did. And I was actually really curious. And I'm not surprised by that answer because he went through a lot to get the 2009, you know, and and kind of going back and doing some of the ret- retrospective pieces on Kobe when he retired. And then again, when he died, um, those titles were not guaranteed. Right. And it's, it's really easy to just kind of like, well, you know, Kobe was an all-time great. So of course he was going to get to five. And a lot of things had to fall in place perfectly for that back to back. And then, you know, just his mental fortitude carried the day yet again. Um, so yeah, I, that was kind of my first introduction to the NBA and you know, I started writing in 2007. So it was like right coinciding with that, uh, that Lakers uh, reign and being in Portland, let me just say that the fans there remember those years just a little differently than you, than you do. I think <laughs> they that weren't Lakers... celebrating like uh, LA or Beijing or Shanghai or any of those cities. They were plotting their revenge. I think
0: that Lakers Denver conference finals in 2009 is one of my all time favorite series as a Laker fan. Uh, just the perfect amount of, you know, difficulty to actually advance without ever being terribly concerned that it was going to go in the opposite direction. <laughs> I really enjoyed that team. But yeah. Anyway, Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. Talk about your book and talk about the Lakers. The book is called bubble ball inside the NBA's fight to save a season. It's awesome. I can say that having read it over the last four days, it's a great time. And make sure that you're following Ben on Instagram at Ben.golliver, right? Because that's where all the good stuff is.
1: Yeah, that's where the fun stuff is. And let me just say for your listeners, because uh, you mentioned the bookmarks, if any of your listeners do buy the book, they can reach out to me on Instagram. I will mail them a copy of the AD bookmark and the LeBron bookmark that you mentioned. It's a little bit easier to do it to US addresses. So just like have that as a qualifier, but If you guys want those bookmarks, I think Sabrina's probably posted them on Instagram herself and all that, but uh, I'm glad to send those out to anybody who's interested. And I've had a number of Lakers fans itchy for that AD and and LeBron bookmarks. So I'm glad to do that. Just hit me up.
0: I will say the most engagement I've gotten on Instagram in recent weeks is when I posted the bookmarks and I was like, how can I get these?
1: (laughs) No, look, bottom line, if I knew that that was going to be what people wanted, I probably would have skipped the book writing process (laughs) and just become like a a bookmark dealer. Uh, Maybe it would have been a little bit more profitable and a little less stress, but, uh, I'm glad that you took the time to read the book too. I do really appreciate it. Uh, and thank you for having me on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you all for listening to the show. We'll be back tomorrow and talk then.